Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back. Oh, the singing is back. Yeah, I can't help myself. I know, and I love it. One day it's going to, like, burn itself out and stop being amusing, but... I mean, we've gotten this far. (laughs) (laughs) We hit 1,500 listeners. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm very proud of us and just, like, so happy to have a Midwretched fam. So hi out there to all of you. Hi, friends. Hi, family. Indeed. (sighs) So there's a lot going on in the world right now, and... If I may, for just like a second before we get into your story. Please do. Just a second. I mean, we talked about it last week a little bit, just the fact that Lisa Montgomery was executed. You know, even though we touched on it, it's just been heavy on my mind. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was two weeks ago from the when this episode was released. It just feels like... I mean, they did this day of execution... And then they pulled the stay in the same day. So she was still executed. You said, what, like 16 hours? Like a couple hours, yeah. Yeah. I just have been thinking a lot about her. And again, like whatever people feel about the death penalty is their business. Um, I just feel like there's something like inherently inhumane that gives me great pause to think that somebody could go from having a stay of execution to dead in 24 hours. Like, that really bothers me. So, I don't know. I just need to put that in the world that it bothered me. And it's still bothering me. I don't think you're alone in that. Well, I know you're not alone because I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. I think a lot of people out there are really shocked about how that whole thing played out. And again, whatever you believe about the death penalty, damn. That is, that's harsh. And that feels just so inhumane. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and just I be- so, like, grossly politically motivated, too, you know? Entirely politically motivated. It was, I think, like, four people in seven days were executed. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that, but I feel like it was right around there. Yeah, yeah. It's a literal execution blitz. And again, whatever your beliefs are on that is your business. And clearly I'm just eating frozen yogurt about it. But I don't know. Even if you are a believer in that, I just, I can't imagine that there are are a lot of people that think it shouldn't be used extremely judiciously and very very carefully you know oh yeah an execution blitz does not feel careful or judicious to me no no it really doesn't actually we're going to talk about the death penalty in today's case seriously yes we are how do we keep doing this entirely (laughs) accidentally our brains just vibrate on the same wavelength yeah this is not planned at all i'm like stunned this is like you know literally nothing about this case except I told you that we were going to visit three states. Yeah, and I know the guy has a cool name. Yeah. Because I like his name. But I actually, I kind of want to come back around to like the death penalty discussion once all of this is over. Okay. Not that I think I'm going to change anyone's mind, but I, I want to maybe bring up a point that isn't often considered. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I'll just shut up and let you go then. And listen, guys, I had a weird, wonky week. Mm. So I'm doing my best. Let's take narrative therapy. Tell me a story. It'll be your narrative therapy. And that's what we do this for mostly. I mean, really, it is. I promise I'll be done eating this soon. It's just really good. It's half-baked frozen yogurt, so I don't feel bad about it. Oh, my God. That's literally my favorite. Mm-hmm. Oh, that one's so good. All right, so we're going to jump into a case. Now, 
I'm going to let you know ahead of time. This is going to be a kind of a short case, and I feel like things are going to go pretty rapidly because there simply was not a lot of information on this. Mm -hmm. I stumbled upon this really random case Mm -hmm. and just got real fascinated with it. I feel like that's going to become our speciality. I think that this is why I'm so glad we decided to target in regionally with this because Mm -hmm. instead of going toward like the more fascinating or well-known cases, we kind of push ourselves to go toward these like weird yeah kind of lesser known ones totally yeah i love it so we are going to head to iowa today oh iowa Iowa thought they were going to escape our clutches but Mm. no we we cannot escape them and they cannot escape us hi iowa hi iowa we love you i don't Mm -hmm. what's something interesting about iowa ashton kutcher is from iowa oh hi ashton kutcher See, he looks like an Iowa boy. Yes. American Pickers, the Pickers. I love them. I think they're from Iowa. I don't think I've ever watched that. Oh, my God. So good. Um, yeah. Anyway, Iowa, you have weird people living in you. Yes. <laughs> Strange people inside of you. <laughs> you have odd people inside of you. All of that to say, like, you, Tommy, and our lovely listeners are probably going to have a ton of questions about, like, what about this and why this? Mm. I don't have answers for you. So. It happens. We're going to speculate. We're going to yeah. question. We're going to think. I like doing all those things. All right. Today, we are going back to 1987. The most wonderful of years. That's a good year. It brought me into this world. It did. I like that year. Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer was ruling the radio waves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we're going to the small trailer home community in Autumna, Iowa. Cute name. Mm-hmm. To the home of Don and Stella Allen. Now, in some of the news articles, Stella went by Janet. Hmm. The official case documents list her as Stella, but the interviews, they refer to her as Janet. So I'm guessing that's her preferred name. Yeah, like a middle name or something. Yeah. So I'm going to call her Janet, but if I slip in Estella there, just know that I'm still talking about the same person. Okay. So Don and Janet lived in Autumna, Iowa, with their two children, Christine, who is 17, and Kathy, who is 12. Mm. Now, I don't know much about Christine. At the time of our story, she was eight months pregnant. She lived in the home with her, like I said, younger sister, Kathy. Both girls were described as very kind, sweet girls, happy, playful. They were both diagnosed with cognitive delays and learning disorders. Oh. So they tended to require a lot of support from their parents. They were pretty dependent from what it sounds like. Kathy would kind of described as like a happy kind of joyful kid. She would ride her bike around the trailer park, like her little puppy in like the basket of her Aww. bike, which just sounds like the cutest thing. She would always greet the neighbors, run errands for her parents. She was kind of described as pretty funny, um, like to make people smile. She's five feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. Cute. Adorable kid, right? Yeah. So the family wasn't super well off. And this kind of plays into part of the story, because especially at this time, they were struggling a bit. 
Don was dealing with a serious heart condition that required a surgery. Mm. Some of the sources said that he was awaiting surgery. Some of them said that he was just recovering from surgery. But either way, he was semi-limited in what he could do. Yeah, sure. And the family was considering selling their truck in order to help finance the surgery. Hmm. Don and Janet had discussed selling their truck in order to help finance the surgery. Aww. Yeah, I know. So they put an ad out in the local newspapers and they had let their friends know that they were going to sell this truck. Janet was contacted by like a friend of a friend. I think it was like somebody at her work's family member's friend a couple steps removed from her. So she had never met this person before. Mm. His name was Donald Pitari, and he was interested in purchasing their truck. Janet and Donald agreed to a time one evening for him to come over with his nephew, Andrew Six, to test drive the truck. Mm. So according to a neighbor, the two men arrived on the evening of April 10th, 1987, somewhere between 5 and 6 p.m. I have just have like a bad feeling about this, so I'm sniffing some eucalyptus. Oh, it's I mean it's gonna get really bad really quick. Yeah, yeah, I just have a bad feeling about this. It's almost like we host a true crime show. It's almost know. like all we do is talk about crime on this show. Any whoozle. So these guys show up to take a look at the truck. So these guys show up around five, six PM. Mm-hmm. Now typically it would have been Don that would take the two men out for a test drive. But because of his illness, he was struggling to move around. And so Janet was like, stay back. I'll just go with them. It's not a big deal. We're not going to go far. It's just a test drive. Mm-hmm. Plus, they're like, it's a trailer community. We're close enough to people. It'll be fine. Yeah. So Janet agreed to go take these two guys, Andrew and Donald, for a test drive. Andrew drove while Donald Patari. I'm just going to refer to him as Patari because there's Don and Donald. Ah, uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, Patari sat in the back seat and Janet took the passenger side. They drove pretty far away to the point that it's making Janet kind of uncomfortable. Mm. So the test drive was taking way too long. She's getting kind of uneasy. Andrew Six drove the car down pretty far away from the community, down a gravel road, and Mm. stopped where there's no other homes not good and he motioned to Patari that he wanted him to drive and take over Mm. suddenly as he unbuckles his seat he attacks Janet and holds her down while Patari duct tapes Janet's hands this all happens really really quick wow they shove her into the back seat drive back to the trailer oh my god what now the same witness who saw the men drive up initially that evening said Six and Batari didn't get back until near midnight. Wow. Okay. So that's a very long time. I don't know. Janet did not describe at all what happened in those six hours. At this point, she's still alive, hands duct taped in the back of the truck, unable to get out. Six and Batari drive back to the trailer home, park, and emerge from the truck with Janet bound both holding large butcher knives. Oh, my God. Donald runs out of the home, but he's really quickly apprehended by the two men. His hands and mouth were bound with duct tape as well. Oh. 
Six runs into the home, grabs their wallet and any money that he could find. And then Janet and Don were forced inside of the home. The two men saw the two girls sitting inside. Janet yelled to stay away from the girls and shouted that Christine was pregnant and not to touch them. Wow. To which Six replies, that's the one I want. Oh my gosh. Patari grabs the younger girl, Kathy. Well, Six grabbed Christine. Six proceeds to rape Christine while Patari assaults Kathy. Oh, God. In front of their parents? In front of their parents. Jeez, how horrific. Six directs Patari to get the two children in the car. So Six is kind of running the show at this point. Mm. So just to give you a little bit of a heads up, Patari is in his 50s. Okay. And Andrew Six is in his 20s. Gotcha, because they're an uncle and a nephew. Mm-hmm. That's their relationship. Okay. Yeah, and Patari six is the younger one. Yeah. Yeah. So Patari was one that was, like, in touch with Janet about the truck. Yeah. So six directs Patari to get the two girls into the car. Six attempted to force Stella and Don into the truck, so the truck that they were supposed to buy. So it mm-hmm. seems like the plan was that Patari gets the two younger girls into their car that they came in. Mm. and drives away with them and then six gets the two adults into the truck and drives away with them so when six attempts to force stella and don into the truck don struggled and fought and was able to get away go don and just fucking ran good go don six then grabs janet slits her throat and throws her to the ground oh my god now in all of this madness and all of this chaos, Patari gets distracted. Mm. Christine's able to fight her way out of the car, follow Don, and run into the woods nearby. Wow. Well, eight months pregnant? Well, eight months pregnant, right? Don and Christine are relatively unharmed at this point. That's Physically unharmed. In and of itself. Yeah. 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 But Kathy was unable to get away from Patari. She is trapped inside the car bound six initially tried to chase don and christine but he eventually gave up let them run off and jumped back in the car with patari yikes and they drove away with kathy in the back seat oh my god what a nightmare for this Mm. family yeah like this sounds like the most horrific experience you can even think of yeah that's a trauma i don't know how you come back from well and then remember Janet is laying on the ground with her throat slit. Yeah. This all happened really quick from the time they get back to the home. They invade the home, assault the two girls, and try to force them out. The only thing that the neighbors see is the scuffle that happens outside by the cars. And the the car with Six and Patari drives away. The neighbors run over to help Janet. They grab holding kitchen towels to her throat while they call 911 and wait for the ambulance and the police. Wow. Now, the EMT who evaluated Janet said that her throat was slit nearly to the bone. Oh, my God. And her windpipe was nearly completely severed in half. Ugh. Janet. But she somehow managed to, like, pull all that mom strength together. Mm, it's real. <laughs> I believe it's real. It's real. 
She managed, while bleeding out of her throat, to stand up and scream and yell, demanding to know where her daughter was. Wow. She's amazing. She's she's a fucking fighter, this woman, yeah. let me tell you. She's amazing. When the ambulance gets there, she's finally rushed to the hospital. The EMT has to, like, hold down her jugular just to keep her from oh, bleeding out. Oh, God. She nearly died on the operating table, but she survived after receiving 60 stitches. Wow. Yeah. Janet was an incredibly religious woman, and this mm-hmm. whole family really was. She said that she saw heaven on the operating table, but she knew that she had a family that needed her, and she turned back and kept fighting. Oh, goosebumps. Right? Literally, yeah. I just had like a shiver go up my spine. Oh, Janet. I can't believe how hard she fought. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, I really believe if she had not fought as hard as she did, at least both of the girls would have died. Yeah. So during all of this, while she's being taken off to the hospital, while the police are coming to the home, Don and Christine run back. Mm. They had run pretty far, it sounds like, because it took them quite a while to get back to the home. They get back to the home. Eventually, the police arrive, and Don and Christine are able to give pretty good descriptions of their attackers. Good. A bulletin was put out for both of the men with very strong descriptions. Did they use any names? Like, did they use their real names, I wonder, when they... Patari did. Patari used his real name because he was friend of a friend. So they knew who he was, but nobody knew who Andrew Six was. But if you look up a picture of him, he looks like the most generic human. Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. He is very generic, very like average height, average weight, like average white guy, average looks. The only thing that I would probably note as unique is that his eyebrows have a very distinct shape to them. They're very well-groomed eyebrows. Yes. Yes, they are. But I don't know if that would help catch him. No, it wouldn't, unless people like me were the ones looking. (laughs) (laughs) But you're not a cop, unfortunately. No, I'm not. I've I've thought about it. We'd had a conversation about this recently, but... Yeah? But, well, not, like, changing careers or anything like that. Just, like, in a different life, I would have been, like, a pretty badass detective. Just saying. Yeah, all, all right. that to say, all that to say he's boring and average looking. Yeah, all that to say he is completely generic Midwestern American man. So a bulletin's point put out with descriptions of these two men. Six and Patari drove across state lines into Missouri with Kathy. Ah, now, no. Atumna, Iowa is actually pretty close to the border. So it's not like it was very far And I got the impression that the police departments had collaborated in the past because their collaboration across state lines seemed pretty seamless. Well, that's good. So Six and Batari drove across state lines into Missouri with Kathy. And honestly, we don't know what happened to Kathy during that time. Ugh, that poor child, though. Whatever happened, I don't like the sound of it. No. But police received a tip from somebody that knew the two of them. Hmm. They never said in any of the research I found who gave this tip, but I got the impression that it was a family member. Interesting. Okay, so what's the tip? 
The tip said that they were probably headed to Texas. Okay. And so I could see why you would think that, because that would be something that family would know or like... Like, hey, you know, they might have like a hideout or another family member or somebody in Texas. Yeah. Especially because they, they themselves are family to each other. So mm-hmm. it's not super likely that you and your 55-year-old uncle have like the same friend group. Exactly. Yeah. And like Texas is a big enough state that they seem to zero in on a location real fucking quick. Mm, yeah. So that makes sense too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. So the police communicated and rallied the police in the surrounding areas between Autumna, Iowa, Missouri, and northern Texas. Got it. So Kathy was taken on April 10th. The two were arrested in Moscow, Texas on April 12th. Okay. So just two days later. Now, when they were taken in, Six completely refused to cooperate. Gave up no information, nothing. Mm-hmm. Pataria initially refused, but he finally started to give up a little bit of information. The police told him that Janet was still alive, so that at that point, if they found Kathy, they could have some kind of deal with him. So he gave up the location of Kathy's body. That's really just not how I wanted this to go at all. No. No. So Kathy's body was found the next day in Kirksville, Missouri, in a ditch by the side of the road. Oh, my God. About 20 miles from the Iowa state line. Wow. So really not far from home. (sighs) Not far from home at all. Medical evaluation found that she had bled to death after being stabbed in the neck. Oh, my God. And they found evidence of sexual assault. Oh, that poor child. She had likely been there for at least one day before she was found. Okay, so they didn't keep her for very long. No, it sounds like max 24 hours they kept her body. God, that's so awful. Yeah. So Janet was still in the hospital when it was her pastor that came to her room to tell her that they had found her daughter's body. Oh, God. Now, like I had said, Janet and Don didn't have a ton of money, and it was actually their church community that raised the funds to provide a grave marker for Kathy. Oh, Well, that's good. And Janet was unable to attend the funeral because she was still recovering in the hospital. Mm. <sighs> Jesus. And that's just... I don't know. There was no motivation ever given by these two men. Really? No. So they were tried separately. Mm. And it's really like at this point, the research and the investigation and the trial that I really kind of hit that stuck point. Yeah. Because like we talked about last week, I always want a why. Yeah. And I always want to know, like, a complete and total, like, case study. (laughs) Right. And, you know, there's not – I still, like, contend – I don't know when there's ever really going to be a why that feels like enough. Like, that's my thing. How do we get to the point where that – whatever why we get to is enough. 
I want a genogram. I want personality assessments. (laughs) I want everything. I'll include that in my next one. Okay, thank you. Because my next one has it. My next perp is an INTP. And hey, is it me? Oh, God, you are an INTP. I am a hardcore INTP. Yeah, you really are. Anyway. Um, so the little, here's the little bit of information that I have on these two men. Okay. And then we're going to take a little bit of a turn once we get past the trial. Mm. I know you thought we were done. We're not. I did not actually think we were done. (laughs) (laughs) Not done until you go on at least like five different spirals. And I think we're only on spiral number three. Oh, thank you. Good, 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 good. good. You're welcome. All right. So Donald was 50 years old at the time of the murder. He had a long history of alcoholism and a criminal history that included theft and burglary, pretty low-level crimes, like nothing even approaching this intense. He had lived in the area, and like I said, kind of distantly, a couple of connections away, knew the Allen family. Mm. Um, And Patari claimed that he was drunk at the time of these events. That was his excuse. No, 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 no. He claimed that he had drank a case of beer the night of the attack and blacked out, and he just couldn't remember anything at all that happened that night. Yeah, no, 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 no. I don't no, remember. No, no. Pack of Coors no. Light and... No. This no. is what happens. No. No. No, you would be vomiting and, like, passed out. You would not have the physical or mental wherewithal to hold somebody down while somebody else taped their wrists together. Like, no way. No. Sorry. You wouldn't have, like, the coordinated strength to do what he did. No. I'm not buying this at all, dude. Mm -mm. But he said he blacked out and didn't remember the night at all. That makes no sense. Even though it wasn't a night, it was a two-day excursion. Right, and you had to have sobered up at some point, maybe when you realized you had a 12-year-old girl that you were holding captive for 24 hours or whatever. He said that his role in the kidnapping was entirely passive, and he was just following orders from Andrew. Wow. That's bizarre. Okay. Again, he's the 50-year-old... The uncle. And he was the one who orchestrated the entire frickin' meetup for the truck. Mm Mm-hmm. I just oh, this I, makes no sense. No, it was an excuse. No. He's trying to find a way out, but but nobody fucking bought it. Good. The people of Iowa didn't buy it. The judge didn't buy it, and the judge sentenced him to two hundred years. Wow. For the murder of a disabled child. Wow. Okay. With the possibility of parole after sixty-six. 66 years? After 66 years. Wow. So at 116, he would be eligible for parole. Well, I'm thinking he's probably not going to make it. Uh So yeah, he's got 32 more years. I mean, science is grand, but I think he's probably (laughs) not going to make it. (laughs) Now, let's get back to Mr. main boy here, Andrew Wessel Six. Wessel. Wessel. Andrew was 32 years old at the time of this crime. Mm. He was originally from Pershing, Iowa. Okay. Where he was a well-known high school dropout. Mm. 
Uh, now, in his legal appeals, he claimed that he, too, was diagnosed with cognitive impairments mm. and that he, too, was under the influence of substances and was being manipulated by his uncle at the time of the crime. Oh, geez. Okay, so you're not going to get a straight, like, power story out of these guys at all? No, no. Mm -hmm. They're going to feed off of each other like, oh, no, I was drunk, too. Oh, no, I had that, too. Oh, no, I had that, too. No, he was in charge. No, he was in charge. Right. Yeah. They feel like the psychopathic Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yeah, that sounds about right. So did Six have like a documented cognitive disability prior to this case or like was he assessed? So it seems as though he was assessed at some point. I could not find those specific records. Mm. Basically, what kind of played out was that he was evaluated and found to have a below average IQ, but below average is very different from having a cognitive impairment. Right. Lots of people have below average IQs. Very few people have cognitive impairments that qualify for a intellectual disability. Right. Right. He also said that he had a, quote, disorganized childhood, suffered from hyperactivity and depression, hmm. and that he was neglected because he had partial deafness that wasn't addressed immediately in his childhood. Although it would indicate that he was addressed just maybe a couple years late. Interesting. But he said all of those things made him not responsible for the crime. Uh, no. No. Yeah. No, sir. I don't know. Just throw it out there. Throw it out. Like, even if maybe you would have qualified for like an ADHD diagnosis, has literally nothing to do with what you did. No, yeah, there has to be a point A to point B. That's the thing. And it's not to invalidate any of those struggles, obviously. No. It's just that unless you can verify that those particular disabilities or disorders are the cause for the crime, you don't have a defense based on incapacitation. You just don't have it. No, not at all. Six also had a series of arrests and theft prior to this. Mm. He was actually on court supervision Hmm. at the time of this crime. Oh, good. For a related theft that happened just a couple of months prior. This is our second Iowa case where somebody on some kind of probationary period committed a murder. Yep. The crime that he was actually on, like, court supervision for was incredibly minor. Yeah. Like, it was a very minor theft. Yeah. Petty theft. So... It's not that that was inappropriate, but court supervision means like you check in once a month with somebody. Yeah. It's not like somebody's constantly watching you. You're not being monitored. You don't have an ankle bracelet, things like that. No. Yeah. No, not at all. Well, so essentially that gets us like basically nowhere as far as like. As far as his appeals and his information, that gets us nowhere. So he's trying to claim that intellectually he's not he's not culpable, that neglect and his involvement with social services during his childhood and family, that should be a mitigating factor that he suffered from substance abuse, personality disorder. Like he is really throwing everything out there. Yeah. Trying to say this is a mitigating factor. It's a mitigating factor. It's a mitigating factor. Mm. And I guess you could say that's a savviness. Yeah. But 
there's also no evidence that any of this was any kind of mitigating factor. Right. He's throwing like alphabet soup of diagnoses out there to try to get something to stick. Mm -hmm. And he had a ton of appeals because he was eventually given the death sentence Ah. due to the cruelty of the crime against the child. Yeah. And as well as he was charged with sexual assaults on both Kathy and Christina and the attack on Janet. Gotcha. So Patari got off easier because Mm -hmm. he didn't get charged with all of those other crimes. But the stack of everything meant six was given the death penalty. That's also why he got so many appeal opportunities and could basically say, oh, the intellectual disability defense didn't work. Okay, how about the personality disorder defense? Right, yeah, just Uh, keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And none of them ever worked. Yeah. He never provided enough, you know, supporting evidence that any of it was a mitigating factor. And on all of the appeals Mm -hmm. documents that I read, that's what the judge would say, like, This might be true, but it doesn't change anything. Yeah. So Andrew Six was executed by lethal injection by the state of Missouri, August 20th, 1997. So, wow. In the scope of death row stays, that's pretty short. I thought so, too. Like, death row states are, I think I read a statistic on average, they're 22 years. 22 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, and s- I did, in fact, know that statistic off the top of my head. <laughs> no, that's a really short death row stay. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, Missouri is an interesting Also the state. home of Lisa Montgomery. Yes, and the home of my next case, actually. Oh, what? Missouri. So we're going to be back in Missouri. I know. But so Lisa Montgomery was uh, executed by uh, federally. Yeah, yeah. So, and six was... By the state, by the I state, assume. yes, yeah. By the state of Missouri. It's just interesting. It's interesting. I mean, Missouri tends to throw the book, and they have really long sentences. So neither Pitari's nor Sixes shock me at all, just given like mm-hmm. what we know about the way Missouri sentences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, it is a, still a short death row stay. Ten years is not long at all. But um, the Allen family was actually very much in support of the death penalty. They were present at the execution, and actually their local community and church raised money for them to travel because it was such a hardship for them. Wow. So the Allen family witnessed the execution, and I think that that was the most closure that they could have ever gotten. Yeah. I mean, especially I think for Janet, who she didn't get to go to her daughter's funeral. She's living with the scars of this. Mm-hmm. She's living with the trauma of her husband and her daughter, and now her granddaughter, who yeah. was born only a month after this attack. Wow. Oh. I'm glad that Christine was able to carry out a healthy pregnancy after that. Or I know. I don't know if it's weird or not, but that was, like, the thing I was, like, trying to find. I was like, she was okay. Her baby was okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, whatever that last month looked like, I'm glad it was okay Mm -hmm. enough to yield a healthy child. Yeah. Christine continued to live with her parents, who helped raise Christine and her daughter, Ashley. She eventually went on to have another daughter, and the family lives very tight-knit still to this day. Mm. They still find a lot of strength in their church and the community that really rallied around this family to, like, make sure that they were taken care of and, Mm. 
make sure that nothing went wrong. You know, as much as they could, they're like, we're going to get this family to the court hearings. We're going to, like, get this woman to the hospital, whatever they needed to do. This was close enough of a community that they took care of each other. Aw, that's kind of, I guess, a bright spot. Mm -hmm. This is what I always come back to when we have a death penalty conversation. What the problem is, like, how do we define closure Mm-hmm. And does what that looks like to individual families or individual survivors matter? Or is it does it have gravity that necessitates us having kind of a cultural definition of closure? Because mm-hmm. closure is always the question. Like, that's always what people come back to. The family needs closure. The family needs closure. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, should it, should it have mattered if the Allens did not want him to face that? I I always wonder that, like, does the family's wishes matter? There's two ways to ask that question. Does it matter, like, concretely, as in, do courts take that seriously? And in many cases, we know that they do. Mm -hmm. But the other question is, like, should it matter? I want you to take that thought, put it in your rage pocket, because Mm -hmm. we're not done. Okay. Okay. All right. It's in there. It's nothing. It's right in there. Okay. We're not done, even though Andrew Wessel Six has been put to death. Okay. The the, in, the Allen family has moved on in whatever way they can. Mm-hmm. The story of Andrew Six continues. How? <gasps> <laughs> Did he do another murder? In January 2009, the state of Iowa received a significant federal grant from the U.S. Justice Department to fund a cold case unit. Oh, my God. The Division of Criminal Investigation, established in Iowa, was able to reopen dozens of cold cases and find a lot of success with the newfound DNA technology. Yes, yes, that yes. was not available in the 80s. right. Basically, what this meant was they were able to extract DNA from old evidence that they had managed to save and compare it to people currently in prison or that they had other existing DNA on. Mm -hmm. Now, they had very early success almost immediately after opening the cold case unit when they arrested Robert Eugene Pilcher for the 1974 murder of Mary Jane Jones. Mm. And then again, just a few years later... In 2012, the cold case unit was able to recover testable DNA from a 30-year-old triple homicide case. Oh, my God. April 13th, 1984, in the very tiny town of Drakesville, Iowa, a town of only 200 people. Oh, wow. The body of a 20 or 21-year-old Justin Hook Jr., was discovered outside of his mobile home, which had been set ablaze with little or nothing left to recover. Hmm. When police attempted to contact his mother on that day in 1984, the 41-year-old Sarah Link didn't respond. Oh, no. A visit to her house found nothing, and she was quickly declared missing. Oh, God. Sarah Link's body was found just a few days later on April 16th by a farmer on a hilly wooded section of his property. 
Wow. Okay. 15 miles northeast of Drakesville near Eldon, Iowa. Mm. Now, two days after Sarah was found, police dogs come across the body of 19-year-old Tina Laid, mm. who just happened to be Justin Hook's fiance. Oh, my God. Her body was found in a ravine about half a mile away from Sarah Link's body. Jeez. So this was a spree. Yeah, seriously. All three deaths were determined to have been a result of severe blows to the head. Mm. At the time of their deaths, Justin had a two-year-old son and had recently proposed to Tina. Oh, no. I know. When they originally investigated this murder in 1984, the police questioned Andrew Six, hmm. who had been reported by neighbors to have gone to the home under the pretense of purchasing a car. What? Also, it's within a couple of days of the anniversary. April mm-hmm. 13th versus April 10th, right? I know. That's bonkers. Bonkers. Same M.O. What is significant about that date, Andrew Six? Is that like your mother's birthday? Do we have to uncover some like family of origin issues? Like what the heck? I, I, trust me, I wish. I, I wish. And this is what, this is what stuck with me about this case. Mm-hmm. They found out that Andrew Six had been at Hook's home under the pretense of buying a car. Mm. When police interviewed him, Six said, we had a disagreement about the price, and I left. Mm. No biggie. Yeah. Now, police had a good feeling on him, but they had literally nothing else but a feeling. Yeah. And he wasn't... Nothing with that. I know. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I just made a really emphatic gesture. It's her rabbit teeth that get me. You do that. <laughs> so, Six, again, refused to cooperate with the investigation whatsoever because he's a fucking winner. Yeah. And after a period of time with no other cooperation or evidence, the trail went cold. Mm. But we're jumping back into the new times of 2012. Yes. With the newly funded cold case unit and DNA evidence, police were able to extract DNA from the inside of Tina Laid's jeans. Wow. Which first told them that she was sexually assaulted before she was killed. Mm-hmm. Then they were able to match that DNA to Mr. Andrew Wessel Six. Wow. Who had been put to death 15 years prior. That's insanity. Now, police obviously did their due diligence and completed the investigation. Yeah, 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 you have to. Obviously, just because DNA is there doesn't mean that you can rush to ju- judgment. Mm-hmm. So they went out, they re-interviewed everybody that they originally talked to for this. Mm-hmm. Um, as many people as they could track down. Mm-hmm. And with the information they had, it being 30 years old, it obviously wasn't ideal. But they had enough people with good enough memories that they were able to put Six in the vicinity at the time of Hook's death. Mm. So Six would have been 29 at the time of this attack. And I think kind of backtracing, just like you were getting toward, it's the same kind of trigger, the same time of year, within a few days. Yeah. It's the same, oh, I'm going to buy a car and then terrorize this entire family. 
Yeah. In March of 2014, the DCI of Iowa declared that they had full confidence that it was Andrew Six who was responsible for these three murders. Wow. So finally, 30 years later, he is known now to be not a murderer of one, but a murderer of four. And I'm going to go so far as to say at least four. Yeah, because you have to wonder what else is out there. Yeah. yeah, that connecting line of like, oh, I'm going to purchase a car, blah, blah, blah. I am evil chaos incarnate, Andrew Six. Right. Yes. I have a hard time not speculating, I guess. I have a hard time believing that somebody's first homicide is going to be a triple homicide. Yeah, right? And especially like that seems so Justin was found in his home with the right three the bodies in three different places. That's a lot of effort. It's a lot of physicality mm-hmm. like that requires a degree of wherewithal that you don't often hear about from like a first go out of the game. Mm-hmm. And there's no evidence that Patari was there. I just wonder, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, were they buddies? Right, because you do still have to wonder, like, who truly was pulling the strings. I mean, or, like, were they a partnership for a long time? Yeah. Because it would seem odd to me for kind of Patari to, if we give him the most benefit of the doubt, that he was like, yeah, I'm just along for the ride. Let's terrorize this family, but then keep going with it. Yeah, no. And then, like, there's a difference between, like, let's terrorize and rob this family Mm -hmm. versus let's kidnap, rape, and kill a 12-year-old. Yeah. There's criminality, and then there's just being so far off the reservation. Like, there's no way. Yeah, and if we think about, like, the victim, so Justin Hook and his, his family... It was mom, him, and his young fiance. They were both about 18, 19. Right. And with the Allen family, Christine was 17. And Christine was the target, is what he said, right? That's the one I want. Exactly. They took Kathy, it feels like, because it just worked out that way. I mean, he was thwarted when it came to Christine because Christine was able to run. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That feels more like a target and more of a pattern than some of these other cases that we've talked about. Yeah, so really what we need to know is what else was happening in Iowa in the early 80s mm-hmm. similar to this. Yeah. Were there any other, you know, incidences of families being attacked under the guise of buying a car? Yeah. Or even, you know, like a piece of that that would feel like a like a step along the way, you know. That would be really interesting to dig into. Good Lord, what a devious person. Right, and I have no good profile on this guy. Yeah, we don't have much to go on as far as a why. And I don't want to, like, speculate too much, but if there are unsolved homicides in the early 80s in that area of Iowa of Mm -hmm. young women about that age, I would not be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised either. And, like, it's really hard to not speculate about it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the cold case unit ran out of funding. Actually, shortly before this, this was one of the ones that they were just finishing up after they ran out of funding. They ran out of money in 2011. Now, obviously, like, they made a plea to keep it open under the results of, like, we solved pretty easy in three years two long-running cold cases. Yeah, Yeah, it's huge. 
And and so like bringing it back around to like our discussion of like the death penalty. I don't know. I feel like to me, if there's that possibility that we can investigate more crimes, mm-hmm. like Andrew Six never even indicated that he had any other crimes. Yeah. Never even implied anything. Right. And so that's another family that does not get their day in court, does not get the closure, does not get, you know, any of those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know. I don't I don't I don't have a fully like thought out thought on this one. But yeah. I think, yeah, like you said, if there are possibly more people in prison and there are more of these cold cases, somebody yeah. committed that. Yeah, totally. And it just I guess it's interesting to me because it's like what we do like universally in the name of closure for one family in this case like Mm -hmm. automatically negates that for another family exactly won't get to see their case go to trial that won't get to see a sentencing for somebody yeah because justin's son was an adult by the time they finally closed this case yeah and in interviews he had kind of pretty much said that he ran out of hope that they would ever solve it I mean, he was only two, so he didn't have many memories of his dad. Yeah, but it's like you still know what happened. Exactly. Yeah, and you still have that loss, that hole. And it's, you know, you can imagine like, well, okay, like the guy was executed for homicide. So can that be your closure? Like, can that be good enough? And I don't know, but it, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like, feel right that decades later when they finally just happened to get this federal funding right they're like oh yeah we found some evidence yeah here you go here's your closure you know yeah Yeah, you get like a folder at the end like a certificate of completion right like that doesn't exactly it's not exactly a satisfying conclusion yeah so i know that's not the most detail i've ever given in a case but that's what i got on mystery andrew six no but it's a crazy story and a tragic story, and I just, man, I'm going to be thinking about um, Kathy and his three other victims and his surviving victims. I looked for more information on Justin and Tina, and I couldn't find too much, unfortunately. You know, I yeah, think it's, it's hard when it's that old and that rural and there's no technology. Yeah, When there wasn't that much publication of it in the first place. And yeah. I think true to Midwestern fashion, people tend to keep their tragedy close to the chest. Totally. Yeah. So we'll just keep a space for them in our hearts this week. Mm-hmm. For sure. And encourage cold case units and funding of cold case units. Seriously. And put our money where our mouth is and donate towards cold case units because we certainly have that power. Fuck yeah. I think I got this case off of like the Iowa Cold Cases website. I think it's just like iowacoldcases.com. And that's where I kind of came across this like fascinating, like weird little roller coaster of a tragedy. Jeez. Yeah. You took us on a ride, dude. Yeah. It was a short ride, but it was a ride. Yeah. I'll be thinking about this one. It was short, but uh, hellish like Space Mountain. (laughs) You took me on Space Mountain. Oh, thank you. I've never been on Space Mountain. I hate it. But I liked your story. Anyway, so again, it was a shorty, but I hope I intrigued you guys. I'm shorty working. But a goodie. A shorty, but a goodie. I'm working on something real intense for you coming up. So. Yes, and it's going to be a wild, wild ride. Yes. I can't. Like Space Mountain. Yes, but, but better. I can't wait. 
Anyway, we have Tommy coming up next week with something sad, dark. What are we doing next week? Next week is, it's emotional. I mean, we talked about, like, you break our brains, I break your hearts. Next week is definitely an emotional one. I will be taking us, we'll stay in Missouri. And we will be covering two fairly high-profile abducted children cases. Oh, two? Yes. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. We will meet all manner of shady character. We will see a town bent by tragedy and also plot twists that will blow your mind, I think, because my mind was blown. You really do talk like a novelist. I mean, I do have an MFA in creative writing, so I would hope that once in a while I sound like it. <laughs> You're so fancy. Well, yeah. So, yeah, that's next week. So, come back and listen, folks. Come it's back. It's going to be a good one, I hope. Yeah, I hope I didn't confuse you too much with this one, but I think, you know, I did as best as I could with, you know, what we got. Yeah, and sometimes that's just them's the breaks, man. And it's cool that we're bringing attention to these cases that are not super well-known. Part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast was to do some of these, you know, smaller yeah. cases. But also insane situations. So. Insane! Yes. And in these, like, really, really obscure locations. For a mid-wretched world people. tour. Yeah. <laughs> what if we do a world tour of just tiny towns? Like, only towns with less than 500 people. That would be amazing. But Anyway, let's close out. Yes. All right, friends. So please come back next week. And until then, uh, we hope to see you on the socials. We are at Midwretched everywhere. Please leave us favorable reviews. We're so glad to be broadening our Midwretched fam every week. It's been super cool. So we're grateful that you're here. We love you. Come back. Hang out. Chat with us. So, yeah. And be nice. And, and eat cheese. And know that we love you. And we love you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bye, friends. Bye, friends. How dare you lack of eyebrows at me? I know. I don't have any makeup on, so I don't have any eyebrows right now. Aww.